Well, in your bulletins, it says I'm going to preach on John 3, 16 through 21. And what happened is I got pretty deep in my sermon and realized I wasn't going to make it past verse 16. So we're just going to focus on that one verse this morning. Um, so let's just begin by reading John three sixteen. I dare say most of you don't need to even see the words. They're inscribed on your heart since early days. But let's go ahead and read them this morning. John three, sixteen. This is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. You know, John three sixteen, it's it's one of the most well known Bible verses in the world, perhaps, today. Here in America, you see it on billboards, by the road, signs held up at sporting events. You see it tattooed on people's bodies. And there is good reason for this, isn't there? John 3.16 is one of the simplest and yet most profound summaries of the gospel message contained in Scripture. It really gets to the heart of Christianity in a way that few other single verses do. And yet it's also true that people often have a very superficial understanding of what John 3.16 means. The actual words of the text in their context are not usually understood very well. And as a result, this most famous of all Bible verses is frequently used to communicate a message that is not actually consonant with the gospel message taught in the New Testament. This morning, we have an opportunity to really look closely at John 3.16 in its context and to gain a deeper understanding of its meaning. And I think what we're going to find there is a wonderful summary of the good news, which is the only hope for lost and perishing Sinners like us. Well, before diving into the verse, let's just remember what has been happening in John's gospel leading up to it. So you remember after kicking off his public ministry with his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus went up to Jerusalem with his family and his disciples for the Passover feast. And there he immediately created a stir by clearing out the merchants and the money changers from the temple courts. He also began teaching and performing miracles, which led to many people believing in him. But you also remember from verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2 that Jesus didn't take these new believers as his disciples because he knew that for the most part, their faith was superficial. They may have concluded about his ministry, that it was from God. They may have concluded certain things about who he was, but they hadn't really understood who he was and what he had come to do. And one person like this was a prominent Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus. Nicodemus had observed Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, and he was intrigued about the man. He knew Jesus' miracles were genuine. 
He'd concluded that he must be from God, but he wasn't ready to publicly endorse Jesus yet. So Nicodemus came to visit Jesus by night, hoping to talk with him further out of the public eye. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Nicodemus got more than he bargained for in this meeting. Instead of really being able to evaluate who Jesus was by asking him questions, Nicodemus quickly found himself being challenged by Jesus about his own spiritual condition. And to his shock, Nicodemus was told that he, one of the most prominent men in Israel, a a great teacher and leader of God's old covenant people, could not see or enter the kingdom of God, unless he was granted new spiritual life by the Spirit. And when Nicodemus balked at that suggestion, Jesus rebuked him for posing as a teacher in Israel and not understanding such a fundamental truth. Bewildered and humbled, Nicodemus could only listen as Jesus went on to talk about himself, to identify himself as the Son of Man, probably from Daniel 7.13, a a messianic term, who had descended from heaven, and in whom Nicodemus needed to trust for deliverance, just as the Israelites had looked to the bronze serpent when it was lifted up by Moses on a pole to save them from the poison that was killing them. So, having set the stage, let's dive into verse 16. Now, just to backtrack a second, at verses 14 and 15, Jesus had said this to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then, as if Jesus anticipated that Nicodemus was again Wondering how this could be, in verse 16, Jesus went on to explain that very thing. He explained how it was that whoever would believe in the Son of Man when he was lifted up would have eternal life. So he says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this verse is a perfect example of how the gospel doesn't make sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. Because here in this verse, it speaks of two persons, God and his only son, Jesus. But in the book, both Jesus, the son, and God, his father, are explicitly identified as God. And this reflects the teaching of the New Testament that the one being God, for there is only one God, exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods, but three persons who each fully and completely identify with the one divine nature. There are not just three ways that God presents himself in different times and circumstances, like different masks that he puts on, but three 
distinct persons who subsist at the same time in eternal relation to each other, though they are one God. Thus, God is, as Tertullian put it, Trinity. One God in three persons. It's mysterious, but it's clearly revealed in the scripture. And what we're seeing here in verse 16 is an interaction between two persons of the triune God, God the Father and God the Son. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. In this verse, obviously, the word God refers to the divine person of the Father, while the term his only Son refers to the divine person of the Son. Though only the Father is called God here, yet his only Son, Jesus, was explicitly described as God back in chapter 1, verse 18, and he's going to be described as God again and again throughout this book. But let's press deeper into this interchange between the two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. It begins with the phrase, for God so loved the world. Now that phrase might seem kind of bland to you because we take it so for granted, don't we? It seems obvious to us that God would love the world. Of course he does, we think. How could he not love the world? But that is not the reaction, I think, that Jesus intended when he first said it, nor the reaction that John intended when he recorded it here. Instead, this phrase, for God so loved the world, was intended to be shocking to Nicodemus and to the readers on a number of levels. And this shock would only increase on repeat readings of the book. For one thing, throughout the book, you learn more about this world. In contexts like this, the world referred to fallen people, fallen humanity, living in rebellion against God, their creator. So, for instance, just a few verses later, in verse 19, Jesus would say this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Or again, later on in the book, chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, speaking to his unbelieving brothers, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Chapter 12, verse 31, he said, Now this is the judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan governs this world secondarily. And again in chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, the world was not good in Jesus' estimation. It was bad. It was very bad. 
It is the world of fallen humanity. It's the domain of Satan. The world loves darkness and hates light. It loves ignorance and evil and hates truth and righteousness. This is why the world hated Jesus, the light of the world, because he brought truth and righteousness into the darkness of fallen humanity and he exposed their ignorance and evil. And this is why the world will hate Jesus' disciples as well, whom he has called out of the world. Now, when you understand this, you see the phrase, for God so loved the world. It doesn't seem so bland after all, does it? If the world refers to fallen humanity, alienated from God, hostile to him, doing evil deeds, as Paul says in Colossians 1, hating what is right and true. Well, then the idea that God would love the world comes as quite a shock indeed, doesn't it? But there's more. You see, when a Jew like Nicodemus heard Jesus say, for God so loved, well, he would have finished that sentence in his mind. Israel, of course. After all, Israel as God's old covenant people, was the primary object of God's special love throughout the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus did not say what Nicodemus would have expected. Instead of saying, for God so loved Israel, he said, for God so loved the world, which was a much broader term. I mean, it encompassed not just Jews, but all humanity together. For instance, in the next chapter... The Samaritans, the hated Samaritans, who were definitely not Jews, would call Jesus, in verse 42, the Savior of the world. Why? Because they realized that he had come to them, as well as the Jews. Now, when you understand this, the phrase, for God so loved the world, becomes more striking still, because... For over a thousand years prior to this, God's saving love had been directed primarily to his old covenant people, the nation of Israel, and a a few Gentiles like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth who became part of the old covenant community. But now we hear that God's saving love has burst forth and is extended to the entire world of fallen human beings. See, Jesus' words in verse 16, for God so loved the world, they were intended to shock Nicodemus and every reader of this book because of how bad and how big the world was. God the Father loved the entire race of fallen humanity whose ruler was the devil, who was alienated and hostile to him and to his people, And we're living in darkness and ignorance, loving evil. I mean, surely they deserved his condemnation and punishment, not his love. And indeed, the world of fallen men and women did deserve the condemnation and punishment of God. In fact, Jesus referred to it at the end of the verse, right? Verse 16, when he said that, Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That word translated perish 
It's apalumi in the Greek. It, it, it could be translated to ruin or to be destroyed. And in this context, it did not refer to something which happens in this life, but to eternal ruin, eternal destruction, because it's presented as the alternative to eternal life. Indeed, it is the opposite of eternal life. And since eternal life refers to not just everlasting life, but everlasting life in blessed fellowship with God and his goodness, perishing must refer to everlasting ruin and destruction away from the presence of God in his goodness and blessing and under his righteous wrath and condemnation instead. What Jesus was referring to by the term perish here in John 3.16 was nothing other than the just punishment of human sin. Jesus spoke of it often in his Gospels, didn't he? He used images like hell, fiery hell, eternal fire, eternal destruction, outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the perishing, he means. Who can forget his sobering words in Matthew 10, 28? Fear him who can destroy, there's that word again, both soul and body in hell. This is the eternal destiny of the world, of fallen humanity living in rebellion against God. And if they're not saved, they will perish forever because of their sins. But we are told here in verse 16 that God the Father loved the world. He loved the world of fallen humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, even though they are ignorant and wicked, even though they hate the light of his truth and righteousness, even though they deserve to perish forever for, for their sins. How can this be? It's a shock to our system. But it gets more shocking still. Because John didn't just say, God loved the world. He said, God so loved the world. In other words, God's love for the world was such that it led him to do something on their behalf. God loved the world in this way. What did he do? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know that phrase, his only son, it means his unique son, his special son. The same language was used back in the prologue to the book to refer to Jesus as the eternal divine person of the son, who was with God in the beginning, who was the one through whom God the father created all things and then he became flesh and he dwelt among us as the man, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. It was this person, this Son, whom God the Father gave as an expression of love for the world. His only Son, his eternal divine Son, with whom he is in eternal loving Perfect communion. 
See, there is no greater or more precious gift which God the Father could have given. Who could have ever suggested it if he had not done it? And this he gave for the sake of a world of fallen humanity who hated him and live in rebellion against him. But what does it mean that God gave his only son? It's just stated. It's not explained in verse 16 what it means, but there are hints in the surrounding verses. For instance, in the next verse, verse 17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So surely that's part of it. God gave his only son by sending him into the world to become a man, Jesus Christ, so that he might save the world. But that's not all of it. How would he save the world? Well, that's where we must remember the previous verse, verse 15, where it says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I pointed out that that term lifted up, it appears multiple times in this gospel and it always refers to his being lifted up on the cross, his death on the cross. And this too must be part of what it means that God gave his only son. He sent him into the world to save fallen, rebellious human beings by dying on the cross for their sins. He gave him up unto death. In fact, many scholars think that the phrase, he gave his only son, echoes the words of that famous chapter in Genesis 22, verse 2, where the Lord famously told Abraham, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. Well, if so, it would mean that God was now doing what he had told Abraham to do back in Genesis 22, except where if he had stopped Abraham from following through on it, he would not stop himself from doing so. You remember how Paul put it in Romans 8.32, also even more clearly echoing Genesis 22.2, he said, He, God the Father, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God the Father sent God the Son, his only son, whom he loved above all into the world to offer himself up unto death on a cross as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for every wretched, rebellious human being who would repent and believe in him. Paul put it this way in Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, here it is, whom God put forward, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this, verse 16 tells us, was what God the Father did out of love for the world. Indeed, there is no 
place that you can look to see a greater display of God's love than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, hanging, beaten, and bloodied on a Roman cross, dying the death of a condemned criminal because he was bearing the wrath and curse of God in the place of his people, in our place who have believed in him, that we might be saved from perishing forever in hell. Paul put it so strikingly this way in Romans 5, 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But lest we misunderstand what Jesus was saying here, or what, yeah, what Jesus was saying here to Nicodemus, let me just hasten to add something else to this picture. You know, theologians have long affirmed that because the three persons of the Trinity each fully share the one divine nature, they share the same will. In other words, there is only one will of God, which is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so even as we say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, we can also say, the Son so loved the world that he gave himself. Indeed, that's what we see elsewhere in Scripture. So even later in this book, John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in verse 18, he adds, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Or consider Ephesians 5, where Paul said in verse 2 that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then later in verse 25, famously, it says, Christ loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her. You see, those who look at John 3.16 and other passages like it where God the Father gives up his Son unto death as a sacrifice and see in it an act of cosmic child abuse have badly missed it. They're guilty of blasphemy. What we are seeing here in John 3.16 is a triune act of the one God. An act of both the Father and the Son. It's an act of unfathomable love for the world, a world of depraved sinners. God the Father graciously sending his own beloved Son into the world to die as a sacrifice for their sins. And out of the same profound love, God the Son willingly entering into the world as a man, making himself nothing and offering himself up unto death to save men and women from eternal ruin, ruin that they deserved. Indeed, more than that, Jesus said that God's intention in sending his only son was that wicked and rebellious human beings, the world, might not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, instead of suffering, 
eternal ruin and destruction away from the presence of God in his goodness and in his love, they might experience the blessing and the favor of God in his presence forever. You know, David famously describes what I think John means by eternal life in Psalm 23, verse 6, when he said, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Out of his great love, God the Father offered up his most precious treasure, his beloved Son, that sinful human beings who were his enemies might be rescued from eternal torment in the lake of fire and instead enjoy fellowship with him forever instead. It boggles the mind to think of it. The old hymn was right when it said, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. But I have left out one important point. Jesus describes something done in history. God sent his son into the world to be lifted up on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And there he accomplished salvation for the world from perishing. But how does that salvation come to you or me or to anyone? And here again, verse 16, we find the simple answer that we've seen before and we'll see again and again in the book. So simple that people find it difficult to accept. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's just repeating what he said in the previous verse, verse 15. The son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John introduced us first to it back in verse 12 of chapter 1. He said to all who did receive him who Believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Simple faith and trust in Jesus. That's all it takes. You don't need to do anything to earn it, to to bring it about somehow. God doesn't give us salvation based upon who we are or, or what we do. It's a gift. And we receive it by faith. We simply believe in him. We believe that he is whom the Bible says he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We we believe that he did die on the cross and rise again for our justification, and we trust in him. We rely upon him to save us from our sins through his death on the cross, just as he promised to do, to keep his word. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him in this way, he will save us. He'll save us from perishing and he'll give us eternal life as a gift so that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that goes for any fallen human being, Jew or Gentile, young or old, of any nation or ethnicity, no matter who you are, no matter 
the things you've done in your life, God so loved the world that he gave his only son eternal life. If you haven't believed in Jesus yet, the question I have for you is, what are you waiting for? Hear this good news. Come to him in faith today, trusting in him to save you. Of course, recognize that doing so will change your life. Because those whom Jesus saves from perishing, he also calls to a new life. A new life of forsaking past sin and beginning now to follow him as Lord. This begins with being baptized in his name and joining a local community of his people. We call them churches. And then learning how to obey everything that he's commanded you within that context. Jesus saves you from sin to holiness. But let me tell you, there's no greater joy available to man than a life of holy living in fellowship with God forever. And besides, what's the alternative? Perishing. Those who are not saved unto eternal life will get what they deserve, eternal ruin in hell. Jesus would actually say this down in verse 36 of this chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, taking a deep dive here into this famous verse, let's just step back for a moment and and just think about some other ways in which it should affect our hearts and our lives today. Good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save sinners who believe. And so the most important thing that you can do that this text teaches you to do is to believe in him, to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And I've already made that clear. But there are also a number of other important lessons that we who have believed can learn from this verse. Let me just highlight briefly five of them now as we close. First, John 3.16 teaches us we cannot understand the magnitude of God's love for mankind revealed in the gospel without also understanding the hostility and rebellion of mankind against him. You know, it is so distorting, it's so damaging to proclaim a gospel that either doesn't talk about the sinfulness of mankind or minimizes it way down so that it's If it's talked about at all, it's just described as mistakes and sickness or spiritual poverty or brokenness. And those are fine ways of describing the fallen human condition. They are used in Scripture, but to separate them from the other ways that the Scripture talks about our condition by nature, evil, wicked, foolish, rebellious, idolatrous, If you talk about God's love for humanity while ignoring or minimizing human sin, you only end up hindering people from seeing and appreciating the true magnitude of the love of God. For God to love people who are broken and needy and lost, that's not actually that incredible. We pretty much expect that. Heck, we do that. 
John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, that is the world of fallen people who hate him and have rebelled against him, that he gave his son. Scotty Smith put it this way. He said, the world spoken of in verse 16 is the rebellious world of God's image bearers. God loved rebels, fools, idolaters, so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, to redeem them, to actually purchase a pan-national, transgenerational family for himself. That's a love, you see, which is so unique and wonderful. It rightly evokes our awe and our admiration. Second, John 3.16 also reminds us that the ultimate expression of God's love for man is in the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ. God shows his love for human beings in all kinds of ways. We get that, right? I mean, you walk out this door and the sunshine or the rain that comes in its season, the gift of a spouse and of children, the the gift of our physical health and all that we have in life, these are all expressions of God's goodness, of his love, and it's fine to talk about them, but we must always remember that the greatest expression of God's love was that he gave his only son. That he sent him into the world as a man to die on the cross for our sins. And it's very important that we remember that because otherwise our sense of God's love will be very, very fickle. After all, the sunshine might be taken away and the rains dry up. Our wife or our children might let us down. Our health might be broken. Our money might run out. And if these are the primary ways we see God's love expressed to us, well, then the loss of these blessings are going to make us feel like he doesn't love us anymore. But if we are focused on the fact that God has so loved us that he gave his only son to come into the world to die as a sacrifice to save us from our sins, we're going to remain certain of his love, no matter what he lets happen to us in this life. You know, Romans 8, 32 through 35 just basically makes this point. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Third, John 3.16 reminds us that it reminds us of what God in his love has actually saved us from. You know, the problems we face in life, problems in our marriage, Problems with our children, problems with our finances, our job, problems in our society, problems in our own head. They can become all-consuming to us so that that's all we think about. That's all we want relief from. And when this happens, there's a tendency to think of Jesus as the one we need, okay, to come and save us from these problems. And to think that this would be the best way for him to show his love for us. 
If you love me, Lord, please deal with this problem. But when we understand this text in its context, John 3.16 brings us right back to reality. It reminds us our greatest problem, the problem that overshadows and every other problem and makes them all pale in comparison is that we were destined to perish. We were headed to eternal ruin and destruction in hell because of our sin. And that prepares us to understand and appreciate the salvation which God has actually given to us in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, when that is at the forefront of our hearts, it fills us with a relief, with a joy, with a gratitude to God for his amazing love that will then enable us to endure the hardships of life without being overwhelmed by them. And we'll be able to maintain a proper priority upon proclaiming this good news to other perishing sinners rather than focusing solely on the temporal problems that they are preoccupied with as well. Fourth, the love of God described here in John 3.16, the love which led him to give his only son as a sacrifice for our sins, this should have a shaping influence upon our lives as those who have received it. The way this works is nicely summarized by John in his first letter, 1 John 4, 10-11. There he said, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In short, we should love others in the same fashion that God has loved us. Now think about what this means. God loved us while we were wicked and rebellious sinners. So we should love others despite their sin against us. We can't refuse, in other words, to forgive those who harm us, to be patient when wronged, to do good to those who have treated us like enemies. Rather, Paul said in Ephesians 4, 31 through 5, 1, he said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's something that we all need to hear, me first and foremost. But in addition to this, God's love for us was generous. Generous beyond all imagination. He didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Should our hearts not be enlarged by this? with a free generosity toward those around us, whether we think they're worthy of it or not. 
In other words, how can selfishness and stinginess survive in the face of such great love toward us? Finally, fifth, let me say we can never move on from John 3.16 because it speaks about the most important truths in all of Scripture, which are central to our lives as Christians. We're never going to plumb the depths of what's summarized so simply in this verse because it speaks of things that in one sense, surpass understanding. Nevertheless, we should strive our whole lives to understand them better. Not just to understand them in our heads, but to know them in our hearts. Because they will keep us anchored to God and they will transform us into the image of His Son. Brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're that you should not read the rest of Scripture, just recite and think about this verse. Nor am I denying that there are other things that God has to teach us that we should seek to learn from the Scripture. I'm simply saying that John 3.16 reveals the beating heart of our faith. The things of first importance, which we really should spend our whole lives seeking to grasp with greater depth. Because as God by his spirit increases your knowledge of his love for the world expressed in the gift of his son, that will make us greater lovers of God, greater lovers of others. That will make our hearts holy for our good and for his glory. So earnestly pray that God would strengthen you by his spirit in your inner person, as Paul prays in Ephesians 3, to comprehend with all the sins. It's the height and the depth to know the love of Christ. Well, in conclusion, this morning I hope that you've gained a better understanding and appreciation for that wonderful verse, John 3.16, which is familiar to so many and yet understood by so few. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the truths of this verse. We thank you for the fact that they are not just abstract truths, but they speak into our lives about God's disposition toward the world of which we were a part. They speak of the love that God the Father has shown to us. They speak of our Savior and King who loved us and gave himself for us. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner person. That each one of us in this room, young and old, would grow to have a greater and greater grasp of your love, Heavenly Father, in your Son, our Lord Jesus. That we might, as Paul said, be filled up with all the fullness of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.